Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, cosmic kid. Cosmic kid. Is that a, is that a thing? Dave, got it? I, I like it, yeah. Do you know what it is? No. It's a Springsteen reference from growing oh, okay. up. Yeah. Oh, okay, uh, I, didn't, I didn't catch that one. Cosmic kid in full costume dress. Oh, all right. Is that is not even like the name of a song? It's just a no, lyric? just a random. Just a real deep cut there. Hey, baby, you know, I'm not just going to give you the hits. Yeah. I'm going for the full, well, the full Monty here. I know when it comes to Springsteen, you know your stuff. But we're not talking about Bruce Springsteen. We're talking about the films of 1989. <laughs> and in this episode, we're talking about the biggest flop of 1989, Terry Gilliam's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Yes. And after having researched it, I take issue with this, with this floppiness of it. Uh, we take issue with it how? Well, I mean, it was basically sabotaged to become a flop. Right. That is true. I mean, and in fact, even I was looking up the alleged financial information on it, and it grossed $8.1 million on a budget that is reported to be $46.6 million, but that is heavily disputed. And supposedly the studio, because there was a turnover in the studio, said we're not going to give you any more than 25 million but they had originally agreed to 35 million and he came in at 35 million so he didn't even go over at that point right time, which i mean it's very anti gilliam that's what know. he says and i feel like i like terry gilliam but i'm not always inclined to trust what he says about the budget and things like that i think it's fair to say that there are a lot of com- conflicting stories about this and it's hard to know who to believe yeah, I just, I mean, the more you read, the more you could see, like, this was, this was kneecapped, as we say in Jersey, yeah? Yeah. Someone kneecapped this film before it even came out. But I will say this, it looks like it costs a lot more than $40 million. Like, yeah. nowadays, that would be $180 million, the way he made that movie look. Right, and I think I saw uh, in one, it might have been in a, in a review, that if it, in fact, cost $46 million, it was one of the most expensive movies ever made at the time. Uh, but again, it may not have actually cost that much money. So let's investigate let, let's this investigate. week on Awesome Movie Year. <laughs> I, I think we can still call it a flop because, I mean, any movie that's a big failure like that, you can point to sort of mitigating circumstances. Uh, I think especially a lot of movies that that fail at the box office and eventually get cult followings there's always the sort of hindsight about what factors led this to fail and why didn't it reach an audience that it clearly should have reached. And so that's the case here too. Well, in season one, we covered North, right? Right. Well, and, yes. And season two, we covered 2007. I know who killed me. Neither of those had their own studio working against them. Okay. No, that's true. That's true. Um, and both of those are movies that were commercial flops as well as critical flops and have reputations currently, not only for being financial fa- failures, but also for being very, very bad. And that's not the case here. And even uh, when it came out, I mean, it was nominated for a bunch of awards and I, the awards that it was nominated for, I feel for the most part, it deserved to be nominated for those awards. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying anything negative. I like this movie, um, but I think we can still call it a flop because there are so many 
reasons that a movie fails financially, and this is one of them. And if we didn't call it a flop, then this episode is a big lie. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And we we don't want to lie to our <laughs> so audience. So this is our biggest flop of 1989. What, what else was in the running? We're No Angels, right? I don't remember. Yeah, I think, in fact, Terry Gilliam talked about We're No Angels and how uh, why it wasn't getting the same kind of blame uh, that he got for going over budget on this movie. But we're not talking about We're No Angels, which I've never seen. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. So let's talk about a movie that we have seen, which is The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I've seen this one. Yeah. We don't have, Dave doesn't have to see it. We know, although Dave, you saw this one, right? I did watch this He's one. He's doing yeah. better. Yeah, I'm, this I'm, is I'm good. Trying, if guys, you I'm have trying. a New Year's resolution of watching the movies for Awesome Movie Year, like half of them, you're... You're head above water right now. I'm crushing it. We appreciate it. Let's not go that far. <laughs> um, so, uh, again, it may or may not have cost $46 million. It did gross $8.1 million, which was considered a financial failure. And certainly, if you look at any of the, the press about this movie at the time, it was labeled that way. Um, but as you said, it was nominated for four Oscars for art direction, costume design, visual effects, and makeup. And I agree that those were all very deserved. It didn't win any of them, but it absolutely could have. Yeah, I looked today, and I think, like, Batman won one, and Driving Miss Daisy won one, and, you know, maybe uh, Glory or something. Yeah, so, I think The Abyss won the visual right. effects, and, you know, that's certainly, like, a hugely Right, so the things that beat it were, were all uh, landmark achievements as well. yes. Um, and this was uh, based on is kind of a convoluted history of Baron Munchausen, the person who was a real life figure, an 18th century German military officer. Herodius Karl Friedrich Freiherr von Munchausen. There you go. Who was known for exaggerating stories of his glory in the battlefield uh, that were then adapted into a 1785 novel called, uh, in English, The Surprising Adventures of Baron Munchausen, written by Rudolf Eric Raspi, and have been adapted into film numerous times. Um, the notable ones I uh, marked down were the George Melies film in 1911, Baron Munchausen's Dream, um, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen in 1943, which is the movie, if you watch all the way through the credits yeah. of this, that they have a disclaimer that this is not a remake of that movie. Right, there was some lawsuit situation. They right. Say it's not there. Also, that movie was commissioned by the Nazi party, um, <laughs> by Joseph Goebbels himself. Although it seems to have a good reputation as a movie, but it was made in Germany in 1943 by uh, Joseph von Bakke. And then uh, Carl, Z Carl Siemens, the Fabulous Baron Munchausen from 1961, a Czech movie, which seems to be one that a lot of people like, but I haven't seen any of these movies. There was also one in the 70s. I had four listed and there was one other in the 70s. Yeah, there's the there's a few others. Yeah. I was kind of trying to find the the ones that seem to have the biggest reputations, Se but yeah, there's a few. Seems ripe for a uh, porn parody, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, that's not what I was thinking, but I, yeah, I could see that he has a big nose could you do something with that he's always off on misadventures yeah he's got he's got a clan of uh well he's got a dwarf with them you know they're always good for porn i and uh and a bbm big beautiful man and i think it's know. a bhm is what it's usually what big, is that? Big, big handsome man oh is it yeah yeah well we got to get in, those terms right in the age of lizzo it you know i think she has done a good job of showing us that beautiful transcends genders and boundaries. Okay. Thanks. She's 100% that bitch. Yeah, she is. <laughs> uh, 
maybe she could appear in the Baron Munchausen remake or something. As? As anybody, right? As you just said, she just proved that she could play Baron Munchausen. Yeah, yeah, she could if yeah. she wants. Maybe in the porn version if she I if she's into it. Yeah. Let's let's move on from that. Um and uh <laughs> Where was I? This movie was was well received. As we were just saying, it may have been a financial flop, but people liked it. It was generally well-reviewed. Um, it got an A- uh, from CinemaScore, the audience polling service. So the audiences that managed to go see it uh, liked it. Right. And let me just note, yes. the audiences that managed to go see it, because the studio only released 117 prints of it, which is far below what you would even release for a small art house release which was about 400 prints at the time yeah um although i swear i saw this movie in the theater i did too yeah so i don't know how that happened for us but um i have pretty strong memories of seeing this as a kid and really loving it well you lived in like by los angeles and i yeah. lived by new york so right that's how that's how it happened, Josh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. From I lived out way out in the suburbs, though. So, I mean, it wasn't like I lived, you know, close to Hollywood or something. So, uh, I guess it did make it at least out that far. Yes, it traveled around the, the greater metropolitan area of Los Angeles. No, I mean, well, you were just saying how small the number of prints was, smaller than an art house indie film, which I can tell you those movies probably mm. didn't travel to where I but was living. But you remember the theater you saw it in? I don't specifically. And I mean, my memories are vague enough that if it turns out that I'm wrong, then it, I would Maybe you it. were all like so into seeing it. You were like, mommy, mommy, take me to see Baron Munchausen. I don't think so. You had see, to drive 40 minutes. Right. Give you your baba so you would stop crying about it. No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I wasn't at the age where I would have really been aware of like what were the cool movies to see? So it seems like Howard something. Howard the Duck? <laughs> was that, that wasn't this year because we would have talked about it. Was it was like 1987. Yeah. Was close. So. No, I remember seeing it in the theater and being sort of wowed by it and probably not being aware of who the director was. But I think uh, when I was younger, I, I really got into Terry Gilliam movies. I remember seeing Time Bandits probably around a similar time on television and just being mesmerized yes and i of course uh wrote a thesis at the age of three on time bandits that's not true at all i don't know why, why you brought because <laughs> you're saying you didn't know who the who the director was oh so saying, you're you were much familiar. more sophisticated than yeah, i was at I, that uh, time okay you know, did a shot by shot sequence of brazil for mm -hmm. my first game jason <laughs> had monty project. python bootlegs yeah when he was in his crib <laughs> that's yeah. right the teacher would always give me detention for my silly walks yeah and uh, no i saw it in the theater and i did not like it at all oh theater. all right well yeah critics liked it although it was somewhat mixed so uh it got thumbs up from roger ebert but thumbs down from gene siskel they were split on it and roger ebert said the wit and the spectacle of baron munchausen are considerable achievements I wish only that Terry Gilliam, who co-wrote the screenplay as well as directed, had been able to edit his own inspiration more severely as he went along. The movie is slow to get off the ground. The prologue in the theater goes on forever before we discover what it's about. And sometimes the movie fails on the basic level of making itself clear. We're not always sure who is who, how they are related, or why we should care. One of the things you have to do when you fill a movie with extravagant fantasies is to explain the story in clear and direct terms so it doesn't fly apart with intoxication at its own exuberance. 
Yeah, all I agree with all those things, and that's part of the reason I didn't like it. I was like, what? Huh? Who right. are you? Wait, aren't you that guy? You're not <laughs> that guy. And then I and then it did take a very uh I mean, man, you could have cut most of the first 20 minutes out of the movie. I, yeah, I suppose. I mean, it is a bit long, but I I think it's the kind of movie that sort of thrives on the nonsensicalness of it. And I feel like that's something that a lot of Terry Gilliam movies do. And if they're good, that you're just so swept up in the absurdity that I'm not looking for logical answers as to what's happening in the plot of this movie. Uh, yeah, but I wasn't swept up in it because I was bored with the story. Right. When you were 10. Much like the porn parody version, which doesn't exist. I yeah. agree. That first 30 minutes, it takes a while to get swept up into it. Once it's going, it's great, though. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is slow to start, and and especially because it starts in a sort of less whimsical way with just the the battle going on and the, the misery Theater of the people. company right. performing stories of Baron Munchausen. Yeah. But once it got into the Baron's own fantastical stories, I felt like I was pretty swept up in it and I wasn't concerned with what's real and what's not real. I guess it's just that we see all those supporting players in the, uh, as like supporting actors and like none of them seem to be or know who they are in regards to Baron Munchausen. And then they're all the people that he says they are. So it's, but are they, I, they're That's just I played mean. by the same actors. I mean, again, I feel yeah. like it doesn't matter. Right. Because it's all just fantasy. That's the thing is it hooks you early and it didn't hook me. So. Right. Well, well, we'll, we'll get into that a little more. Hal Hinson in the Washington post, I think had some similar uh, criticisms. Terry Gilliam revels in artifice and theatricality. He has an animator's obsession with mechanics, with levers and pulleys and the spinning and fitting of gears. But the impression you get from Munchausen is that for Gilliam, a film is perhaps too much of a contraption, too much of an object to be manipulated. In making his films, he's remaking the world completely from the ground up because he knows that invented worlds are the easiest to destroy. He creates his worlds in order to engulf them in flames, all his imaginings have a taste of the apocalypse in them. This is a heavy burden for any fantasy to bear, and Munchausen can't bear it. So, I mean, I feel like this is a similar criticism, again, that, like, it's too fantastical, it's too whimsical, and I just, those were the things I liked about it. Yeah. It's interesting, because right afterwards, he went and did, like, The Fisher King, right? Right, which was a lot more grounded. Yeah. yeah. Um, finally, uh, Sheila Benson in the LA Times said... The sheer volume and invention of Gilliam's visual largesse sets him apart, and his wit operates for the most part his at his largesse. His largesse. No, oh. not his largesse. No, we're not on the porn parody. <laughs> okay, I'm just wondering. Sorry, not. let's let's say um, his wit operates for the most part at a dangerously sophisticated level. Gilliam never aims down. His films zing in somewhere at the Mensa level of reference but he seems confident that we will catch the wit of his visual quotations, and so we do. Like a filmmaking Catherine wheel, he throws off an immoderate art history display. He plunders past film styles with a free hand to make a point. In a peculiar way, the film itself is almost a side issue. Its existence is what's important. It is one of those prodigious leaps of imagination that the screen must shelter or shrivel. Yeah, that's pretty fair, I think. Like, yeah. Like, I mean, like, like I'm saying, like, if you were like, you know, what are the good things? I'd make a whole list of like good things. And yeah. Like, what are the bad things? I'd be like story. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, 
I, I guess I feel like all those goods outweigh the bad and the bad is not, I feel like it's not something that he's trying for and failing. It's something that that's not even what the point of this movie is. Yeah. Do you uh, have any more numbers? I, uh, well, I mean, it won three BAFTAs. Yeah. Yeah. It was British awarded. Right. Academy Awards. Indeed. Um, so, and it was nominated for a bunch of other things. And yeah, uh, I always like, you know, when you're talking about the budget, before he even started shooting, he was $2 million over budget. Yeah. On day one of shooting, they got 24 seconds in the can, you know. On day two, they had 35 seconds. And I think by like the end of the first week uh, or the first month, it was like 10 minutes or some crazy number like that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you can't look at that and say that that things actually went the way they were supposed to on this movie. I didn't say that, but it's part of the process. So. Yes. It's definitely always part of Gilliam's process, it seems yeah. like. Uh, the other background thing that I thought was cool is we've already mentioned Time Bandits in Brazil. Yeah. And these three form like a loose trilogy uh, based on imagination and how you escape with your imagination as a young, middle-aged and older person. Yeah, I feel like that's something that he just retroactively labeled them. Whatever, dude. We already did one uh, trilogy reference last season, so this is our trilogy reference this season. So. Sure, let's go with that, and let's take suck it, Edgar Wright. <laughs> let's take a moment, and then we'll come back and talk about our general thoughts on the adventures of Baron Munchausen. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1989, we're talking about the year's biggest flop or uh, disputed flop, Terry Gilliam's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. 1989, Josh, how much cocaine were you doing? I mean, I was 10, so I hope <laughs> none. Well, you got to admit you have a problem before you can fix it. Thank you. Uh so you did not like this movie as a child. Did you like it coming back to it as an adult? No, it was a real struggle for me to watch this one. So much so that I had to go to a coffee shop and bring my iPad and just be like, you're going to sit here and watch a large portion of this right now. Um, I just, like I said, like I was visually fascinated, but um, everything else until the um, climactic battle in act three, uh, I didn't, I didn't like it just, I just, I think the first, like we said, the first 20 to 30 minutes just lost me so hard that it didn't get me back. Huh? All right. Well, yeah, I disagree. Like I like this movie quite a bit. And I think, like I said, as I have, I had not seen it since I was 10, which I assume you hadn't either. No. Um, and so my memories of this movie were these sort of like dreamlike childhood memories. Like it was almost, you know, uh, not even real. Um, and so coming back into it, I was hoping to be re-immersed in that, I guess. And maybe I wasn't entirely. I mean, it, it certainly has its flaws and you're right. It, it's slow to start. I mean, we start in a, what is it? It's a, like an unnamed, some sort of European city that's under siege by the Turkish yeah, the army. Tur those Turks. Yeah. They're really against the Turks here. Yeah. And, uh, this theater company is performing a, a play about the life of Baron Munchausen in this bombed out theater and the real Baron Munchausen, or at least a person who claims to be the real Baron Munchausen shows up and kind of derails things and says, they're not getting it yeah, right. He's and offended at this production and tells a story about, uh, why the village is being attacked as it's being attacked. Yes. And then proceeds to 
maybe tell more stories or maybe actually head out on a new adventure. It's never quite clear. Uh, as you said, some of the supporting members of the theater company uh, seem to correspond with people that were the Baron's friends in his life or in his stories. And my impression of that was not that those were meant to be the actual people, but just that they used the same actors to play both the theater company member and the Baron Munchausen uh, sort of teammate in order to blur those lines between what's real and what's fantasy. I guess fantasy. that would have worked better for me if there was a little more separation. There was no wardrobe separation. You know what I mean? Eric Idle maybe was had hair in one and was bald in the other. And the big fella had hair in one and was bald in the other. But really, they looked exactly the same, I felt like. So that kind of threw me for a loop. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's supposed to throw you for a loop. The whole point of this movie is to question what is in the Baron's imagination and what is really happening and whether that even matters. Well, we know Terry Gilliam, you know, uh, his fascination with Don Quixote. Yes. And uh, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. So everything is all about um, the line between reality and uh, fantastical. Yeah, that's something that comes up in Gilliam movies over and over and over again. And I think you kind of just go with it or you don't go with it. And I mean, to me, I did go with it. Like, at first, it's slow, but I feel like the slow part of it is the part that's more realistic and makes more sense, and it gets better after it stops making sense. Well, my problem isn't that the slow part of it makes sense. It was just boring. You know what I mean? Like, if what the like, I kind of like the Robin Williams sequence because it was yeah. so the king the, as the king of the moon. Yeah, who would take his own head off just so he could just think, uh, you know uh academically instead of with his loins yeah there you go um i thought that was fun and yeah it just it just took too long for me to you know we were in first gear the whole time the whole time or just no you know for a while for me for a little while yeah but visually like you're getting to the moon and like i mean dude those battle scenes like are as good as any great war movie battle yeah. scenes like he could direct he could direct like a classic war movie and be awesome at it i'm sure like technical wizardry all the way through there's one shot uh where munchausen is gonna be you know uh decapitated again you know yes. off with his he's, head he's often in danger of being decapitated yeah yeah executed and like i had to i watched it twice because i was so impressed uh they like track back and the tracking shot lasts for like 20 to 30 seconds and each time they track there's another set of soldiers that like fills in the frame so it's a it's an incredibly impressive shot yeah um and i felt like that the whole way through like and you know on the moon there's like those kind of 2d like theater sets as the moon which which i think i had read they only used because they ran out of money yeah it was a budget set. thing but it's super effective You're yeah right. yeah and then when they find uh eric idol up there in that kind of space-time continuum like that that was probably my favorite set of the whole bit, you know, but uh, like I said, visually, like I was enthralled the whole time, but I don't know, just didn't do it for me beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the visual is such a huge part of it that that's what makes it enthralling a lot and is is worth it just for that. Although I like the performances a lot. I thought John Neville, who was known for being a theater actor and hadn't continued to not do a ton of film was very charming as the Baron. Yes. And and Sarah Polly is great as the yeah. as the kid sidekick. No? I like Sarah Polly. You I know you're you love Sarah Polly, but eh, you know, she adequate as a child actor. Yeah. All right. 
I, I liked both of them a lot. And I felt like there was a nice, sweet dynamic between the two of them. And that's something that can ground the story that you can see that relationship between him and the little kid um, as everything is going off and being fantastical and crazy and, and nonsensical. So that worked for me. You think she was upset like that Anna Paquin got an Oscar nod and an Oscar like very same age around the same time and I mean, no, I would say probably not. It'd be cool if there was like a little feud, you know, because we have these feuding actors and actresses. Wouldn't it be good if we had a feuding nine-year-old against a feuding nine-year-old in Hollywood? I No, I think the answer to that is no. <laughs> okay, I just, you know, you talk about how Terry Gilliam spices things up, and here I am spicing up the Hollywood feuds, and, and you're just rebuking it all together. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, and I'm not saying she should have gotten an Oscar nomination. I'm just saying that she was good in that role and brought something to the movie that I appreciated. Um, Eric Idle? I mean, come on. Yeah, know? everyone loves Eric Idle. Yeah, who hated cool. being in this movie. Yeah, there's that great quote from him. Uh, I'm guessing you probably saw it too. I marked it down. Yeah, he said, what was it? Watch Terry Gilliam movies, but never yeah. be in them. Up until Munchausen, I'd always been very smart about Terry Gilliam films. You don't ever be in them. Go and see them by all means, but to be in them, fucking madness. Yeah, and Sarah Polly also hated being in this movie. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Gilliam, I think, maybe has that reputation for being, not only is he going over budget, but he's, pushing actors into places that uh yeah, maybe fin him fincher oliver stone they all have this reputation of and, going over the edge and the results i think again to me the you know the results seem like they were worth it this movie was was really fun to watch but uh obviously not for you well i'm glad that you think the breaking of the spirit of a nine-year-old child was worth it for your own entertainment i mean i do i wonder if those actors said that after it gained its uh you know reputation or if they said it immediately after shooting like this was terrible well i know sarah polly said it much later because it was as an adult looking right. back to her childhood experience i'm not sure when eric idol said what he said yeah and uh, you know remember this was produced by the collective production company from the monty python players so he probably had some skin in the game anyway yeah and maybe was disappointed that it hadn't uh achieve the the box office success that they were looking for mm -hmm. with it. But I mean, I think whatever problems they might have had personally while on the set, it doesn't come across in their performances. I agree. I, and I like I said, like and you don't see like when you're watching the movie, like, oh, this was like a disaster shoot, you know. Um, but then again, you don't see it in Apocalypse Now either. Right. So. Right. Right. I mean, I think that movies that that's why I guess I'm saying like it's worth it where movies where they go through all of that and then the result is they get what they were aiming for, then you feel like you don't think about all of that. There's movies where that just doesn't happen and you can watch it and you can see how off the mark they were or how much these actors were struggling with things. Right, right. Uh, but that's not the case. Here. I, I agree. I agree with you on that. What about Uma Thurman? Were you a fan of oh, her? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, man, what a, what a ravishing debut, right? Yeah. So she's, uh, I mean... I love she's a great actress. Yeah. With Thurman. Not that in this she didn't really have much to do. In no, this no. She she plays sort of a, a symbol more than a person really here. But, you know, those early parts that she had were, um, you know, a lot of people uh, noted her stunning physical beauty. Yes. Which I think she still has today, you know, so, uh -huh. and she definitely, you know, just 
she jumps off the screen. Right? Yeah, I mean, she's essentially playing the personification of beauty in this movie, playing playing Venus, uh, as well as like other actors playing a dual role as a a woman in the in the town that's under siege. Yeah, I thought uh, Uma Thurman and Robin Williams were fun. I thought a uh, Sting's cameo was completely worthless. Worthless. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's only worthless because it's Sting. I mean, the 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 part functions the way it's supposed to. But you're like, why is Sting doing this? And apparently, uh, it was they were neighbors, right? right? Yeah, he's just doing a favor for Terry Gilliam. I mean, Robin Williams too was doing a favor. He's not even credited in this movie under his actual name. I know. I think he did it for free, also. Yeah, I mean, so I think Terry Gilliam, as much as some actors have maybe complained that it was difficult to work with him, he also engenders this sense of loyalty because he as much as he puts people through the ringer for his films, he goes through that himself. And I didn't get, like we had mentioned like Fincher and, and Oliver Stone, uh, you know, I didn't read anything where it was like Terry Gilliam is basically making these actors like uh, pushing them to the brink of mental insanity, which is what, you know, Fincher, cause he makes them do like 90 takes and Oliver Stone, who's always playing mind games with his actors that's what you hear from that. This just seems like his process is very drawn out. And as an actor, you would get frustrated and be like, can we just call it a day? And can I get some sleep? Right. It's, it's chaotic. And, but again, I think that's what I'm saying is that like, as opposed to being this sort of like taskmaster, like stone or like Fincher, he's right there in the trenches with these actors and he's going through just as much of an ordeal as they are. And that maybe is why he gets that loyalty from people. I mean, You've got like Jonathan Price in this movie, who is very funny as the 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 rules obsessed bureaucrat who's negotiating the surrender with the other side, and and he's been in multiple Gilliam movies all the way through. You know, the man who killed Don Quixote just in 2019. So certainly there are people who work really well with him and are willing to go wherever he asks them to go. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're not one of them. You're I, not, I haven't been offered a part. I can't say. No, that. but you're not willing to go where he asks you to go in watching his movie. I mean, I'll go there, but I just, this one didn't take me there. Yeah, that's, that's fair, I suppose. Um, was there anything other than the visuals that, that really stood out to you that you enjoyed? Well, I mean, you know, this was a very, like, if you were going to critique it, like you could say it was very sequential as in like, First, we're in, you know, we're going to the moon and now we're inside of a whale or whatever, you know, we're inside of a volcano. And that has advantages and disadvantages. Like if a sequence doesn't hook you right away, it's going to be tough to get on board with that. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I was very impressed with the directing, but yeah, I just, uh, I feel like I'm sticking to my opinion. On no, that. I, that's, I'm not trying to get you to change your opinion. I just... Wondering if there are anything else that stood out to you. It is very episodic. And I think I I saw a, an interview somewhere with Gilliam and possibly uh, Charles McEwen, who's the, the co-writer as well as uh, plays one of the Baron's sidekicks, saying how the material in general, whether it's the original novel or the previous movies that were made or just Munchausen himself, it's all episodic. It's just stories like, well, one time I did this and one time I did that. And to, to fashion it into a cohesive overall narrative as a feature film took a little effort from them. And, and you're right that it is episodic. They, they go to the moon, then they get swallowed by the fish and they go to the volcano and they're all just kind of, they did this one thing and then they escape and now they're in a different place doing a different thing. And I felt like 
pretty much all of those things were amusing, but you're right that if you're not into one of them, you might just feel like, what is there to care about here? And every, every so often Sarah Polly says, what about the town? And which I liked that was part of their, their relationship that she's, you know, at nine years old, she's the one who's concerned about, you know, real world uh, issues and he, the Baron, is is off in fantasy land, and he's always saying, "Oh no, the town is fine." When of course it's it's not. It's about to be breached and destroyed. Yeah, but but in the end, isn't it okay? Well, yeah, in the end, it's okay, but only because they come back and save it, or do they? Right? I mean, and that's the whole the I whole feel thing like they there. Do. Yeah. I mean, the town is okay in the end somehow. It's not entirely clear whether it's because the Baron. And his uh, people come back and save it or because it just the siege ends uh, without his involvement at all. And he's just kind of distracted people with his crazy stories during their difficult time, right. which is a valuable thing as well. It's There's a lot of uh, rigmarole to this. There is a lot of rigmarole. I will agree. And I enjoyed the rigmarole. Um, uh, I clearly you did. No, no, you didn't. So... Uh, one thing, I don't know, I watched through the credits and I don't know if you noticed this, but did you note who was the second unit director on this film? No. Michelle Suave, director of Cemetery Man. Oh, it all comes full circle. <laughs> yeah, another movie that makes much less sense even than... Does uh, it though? I think it does. I felt it made about as much sense. All right. Well, uh, Michelle Suave apparently was... Uh, I mean, this movie was uh, shot, a lot of it was shot in Italy, so it makes sense that they would have hired an Italian, someone in the Italian film industry to work on the second unit. Uh, but he did also work again with Terry Gilliam on The Brothers Grimm, which was like uh, 16 years later yeah, or something. Yeah, I didn't see that one. I've seen it. It's not, it's not his best. It's because it's too mainstream. It's trying too hard to make sense. And that's but not his, his jam. Other mainstream ones were big hits, you know? Well, it was a big hit, The Brothers Grimm, actually, but yeah. I just feel like it wasn't a great... It's been a long time. I saw it in 2005 when it came out and I haven't seen it since then, but I remember thinking it was, it was all right for Gilliam being kind of forced into a, a mainstream position, but uh, we can get to that and more things unless you have any other uh, thoughts. You seem to have uh, thrown in the towel on this film. I, I feel like, I mean, I, I've, I've look much like the, many papers uh, academic papers i've written on the films of terry gilliam sure i've made my points yeah and i will let them rest on their merits so in that case we should give it a rating uh out of five uh i don't know what uh giant fish maybe i don't know Nah, no we could do better than that five prosthetic noses well, we 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 always do those the the things. How about we always do the things? You're right. No, but we always use severed limbs or you know something along those lines. So, what would you rather use? Five supporting actors who may or may not also be war heroes. That's elaborate, but okay. Uh, I was gonna give it two. Yeah, but then I saw how the studio screwed it, and just because they persisted and made it through all that, I mean, give them an extra half. You get two and a half actors who may or may not be war heroes to me. Sure. That's so generous of you. And it really shows the studio 30 years later. You suck it. Yes. I'm going to give it three and a half actors who may be war heroes because I enjoyed this movie, even though it doesn't really make sense and is slow to start. I had a lot of fun with it. So that's an aggregate of three. 
Yeah, there you go. Did you like it? You watched the movie, Dave. I did like it, yeah. I'd, I'd give it three and a half of the things that you said. <laughs> <laughs> when Dave Dave's holding his cat right now. I was wondering like, if you were Doc, Dr. Evil over there. <laughs> no, I was going to say uh, uh, Melissa McCarthy and uh, Can You Ever... Please forgive me. Can you ever forgive me? Yeah, yeah. that's who you remind He's me. fabricating his uh, star rating for this movie. <laughs> I just need you in a crumbly sweater. So. <laughs> All right, let's come back and we'll talk more about the legacy of the adventures of Baron Munchausen. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1989, we're talking about the year's biggest flop, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, directed by Terry Gilliam. And I mean, the biggest legacy of this film, I think, is Terry Gilliam's uh, continued battles on every single movie that he ever made, I think, pretty much. Yeah, but okay. But he really stuck it to them because, like, you know, all the people who were like hating on him. After Munchausen, I mean, and like we said, the two before were Time Bandits in Brazil. And then the four after it, the Fisher King, 12 Monkeys, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and the Brothers Grimm. Like, man, that's that's knockout punch after knockout punch, at least uh, from a from a uh, commercial standpoint. Yeah. And uh, I mean, all those movies, I haven't seen Brothers Grimm, but the other three are good. <laughs> I yeah that's true uh like I was saying earlier about the Brothers Grimm I think it's all right I haven't seen it in a while but it was a, a box office relative success but even so it took him 16 years to make those four more movies and on all of them he had to battle every step of the way to get it done and that that brings us to one of the great documentaries about a filmmaker who is trying to make a film which was uh Lost in La Mancha which was the story of Gilliam's impossible until last year quest to actually get the Don Quixote movie made, right? Yeah, and that's a great documentary. And and again, that documentary comes in the middle of that period that you were just citing. That, right. that movie is from 2002. So amidst making those successful films, he had this giant failure of not making a movie that was made into a movie about he, how he failed. And then he finally made the movie and we think it's a success because he got the movie out. And what happens? It's not that great. No, and also, don't they? Oh yeah, there was a there was a whole big lawsuit with a guy who claimed he owned the rights to it. It it did come out though. Uh, I mean, there was a brief period where it was being held from release, but uh, it's available. You can go watch. I mean, I've seen it. Dave, you've seen it too, haven't you? Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, yeah, it was all right. Yeah, I it's think, not great, but it's good. Yeah, I think for any movie that you've been anticipating for thirty years or whatever it is, like it's going to inevitably be disappointing. Did you know that? Uh, no, that's not always true. So, yeah, like that Aretha Franklin documentary came out 30 years after she held the footage, and that's universally beloved. People do love that. I haven't seen it. Yeah, me neither. But I'm, but I know people. You know people, and they love it. <laughs> they love it. Yeah. Um, he dreams of giants. Did you know there's a sequel to Lost of? Yeah, I don't believe. Lost I don't know if that's been released yet. But yeah, it's the same filmmakers who worked on that. I feel yeah. like. I mean, I'd see it. But what's great about Lost in La Mancha is the fact that it's about this failure about this disaster i feel like a movie just about the making of a movie that worked is less interesting no because you have spent the whole episode citing how difficult the the uh, productions are for terry gilliam you think this one went smoothly well no but it ultimately like succeeded um no i would see that movie and i think those filmmakers did a good job with lost in la mancha capturing 
Terry Gilliam's madness. So I, I, I'd be happy to see that. Yeah, movie. I'd watch them. I'd watch them both. Yeah. Again, I didn't see the new one, but like the old one and then the new one. Right. Right. You know. Um. So what other do you, do you like other Terry Gilliam movies? Yeah, the ones we just mentioned. Yeah. You know? Um. I've honestly, I got to watch Time Bandits in Brazil. I've never seen. I should have. Yeah. Um. But. I disappoint myself again. <laughs> I mean, I've seen I've seen all of his films except Jabberwocky, but some not in a really long time. In fact, like I was saying earlier, Time Bandits, I saw uh, as a kid, probably like on TV, and my memories of it are just these like fragmented they're, dream they're things. They're doing a TV show of it now. Yeah, suppose. I mean, it's one of many, many, many Gilliam projects that he says he's going to do, and we'll see if it actually what, happens. Uh, what was the last good Terry Gilliam movie, Josh? I mean, I think The Man Who Killed Don Quixote was decent it wasn't like great it was better than his previous movie the zero theorem yeah the sci-fi with uh christoph Waltz, which was kind of uninteresting um i mean and before that i think it had been a little while that's the other thing is that he's got these long gaps right it um, wasn't imaginarium of dr parnassus was that going to be Philip Seymour Hoffman or and it's Heath Ledger who oh, Heath right Ledger. So who they, died yeah. during production? Right, another so cast like a bunch of actors. Yeah, and that. it kind of works in that movie. I mean, that's another movie that's like it's okay, it's kind of fun, it's not super memorable, but it's all about like traveling into fantasy dimensions, and so Heath Ledger's character like transforms into Colin Farrell and Johnny Depp and. Uh, I think one other, I can't remember, but it works in the context of the movie. Yeah. Uh, and he's not the main character, really. I, uh, Christopher Plummer, who plays Dr. Parnassus, uh, is really kind of the main character of that movie. Yeah, I, I don't know the last Gilliam movie that I really, like, loved. I like Tideland, which is a, a sort of a polarizing one, is very, very dark. And I was going to mention that because that's another movie where, you know, he he showcases a child actor, Jodel Ferland, in that movie, and gets a, a, a strong performance out of her like he does with Sarah Polly here. Yeah, I mean, 12 Monkeys is probably my favorite. Um, I would probably agree. Although I think the Fisher King is probably worth a rewatch for to make that decision. You right, know? yeah. Um, I'd rewatch any of them because- I would too. Uh, Terry Gilliam, like when I was 12, probably was like my favorite director or one of my favorites. Like I loved those movies when I was a kid. It was one of the first directors I think I noticed- who directed the movies and wanted to see more movies that he directed. But a lot of the movies I haven't seen since then. Going off on a little sideways Gilliam tangent here. Yeah. Have you seen La Jetée? Yeah. Uh, no, the Chris Marker film. That's the the source for uh, 12 Monkeys. Yeah. No, it's a very, I mean, La Jetée is great. And uh, as a film historian, Josh. Yes. Who has written many academic papers. You, you know, I've seen it. Uh-huh. And I'm kind of disappointed in you that you haven't seen it. I should see it. But I'll get through the episode anyway. That's good. Um, it's it's still pictures with uh, narration underneath right. to take what they did in, what was that, the 50s, I'd say, I think, and what he did with uh, 12 Monkeys. Like, yeah, this dude's imagination is like uh, on a different level than most people. Yeah, I think even the movies of his that aren't that good just have so they're just bursting with crazy ideas all the time. And you had mentioned performances, you know, he, I mean, I don't think Brad Pitt or Bruce Willis were either at that point in time known as great dramatic actors. And maybe one of them still isn't, <laughs> but, but you know, he is very good at getting performances out of people. Yeah. And, and like I was saying earlier, he's got people who work with him over and over again, or who always want to work with him. I mean, Jonathan Price who plays, Don Quixote or the guy who thinks he's Don Quixote in, in The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, he's done a bunch. I mean, he was in Brazil and in Baron Munchausen. And I think, you know, he had told Gilliam 
decades ago that he wanted to star in the Don Quixote movie and he couldn't because he was too young then. And thankfully it took long enough that he was now old enough to play the character. Yeah. So, uh, Hey man, there, you know, we, we can disagree, still be friends and agree that all Gilliam efforts are worth watching. Yeah, I think so. Um, as far as other people involved in this movie, uh, we mentioned Sarah Sarah Polly. Uh, who I guess you don't like. No, but... I do like. That's what I'm saying. I just didn't think she was a great child actor. Stories of Us is like one of the best stories we tell. Stories we tell. What the story of us is a totally different. Yeah, it's movie a very different movie. Rob yeah. Reiner directed. Yeah, yeah. Director of North. Yes. Uh, stories we tell is one of the best documentaries I think that's ever been made. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. And I'm waiting for her to do more. I am too. I was looking her up, and I realized she really she stopped working as an actor. She hasn't acted on screen in like ten years. But her career as a writer and director has been kind of slow as well. And the last thing she did was that Netflix series, Alias Grace, which she wrote but didn't direct, uh, which was I thought was okay, but was, was very well reviewed. Wasn't she in Go? <laughs> she, she, she co-starred in Go with Jason Harris. Oh, I, didn't, I wasn't going to say it. Yeah. <laughs> she was in Go. That was a long time ago. And I remember her, you talking about if she was, whether she was a good child actor, I remember her around the same time as Baron Munchausen being Ramona Quimby in the TV series based on those Beverly Cleary books, which I loved as a child. Yeah, I like those books. I bet I'd like them even today. Yeah, they were. there was a feature film version of it a few years ago, and I read one of the books before seeing it, and it was great. Those books are fantastic. So the... The takeaway from this episode on Baron Munchausen is go read Ramona and Bees's books. I mean, there's other takeaways, but I feel like that's, that's not a, a bad one. one, you know. All right, fair enough. Uh, this movie also sort of revived John Neville's career, who played Baron Munchausen and was mainly a stage actor, went on to do more movies and TV. Um, although, you know, sort of on a smaller scale. I don't think it revived it. I think it it helped him transition yeah from more, you know, into more uh screen via as opposed to just stage. Yeah, he was very successful on stage and seemed like he was fine with that and and Gilliam had to kind of convince him to do this film. Yeah, Josh, there's nothing wrong with being a stage actor. There is not. There's honor in the stage. There 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 certainly is and I'm sure the Baron would agree. Uh, and we mentioned Uma Thurman. This is this was the first role. Was it the first role she filmed? Yeah, but not the first that was released because, because of all of the all the, the, yeah. the difficulties. Got it off of one audition. Yeah, and uh, like you were saying, you can see even that in that small part how she just is captivating, and she's going to go on to do great things. I did say that. Yes, and I agreed with it. Um, and I mean. As much as we're criticizing the studio for burying this movie, I think it's it's in a weird, weird way funny that you still like the situation that happened here, which is the studio gives this like notoriously cantankerous, difficult director a bunch of money to go do his weird thing. And then they see what he did and they're like, what? How could this happen? Like you'd think studios would not. I mean, it's great when they do that. That when they when they give you know directors that freedom, but it's just sort of funny to me that that this is a story that happens over and over and over again, and studio executives just keep doing it. I found this quote from Terry Gilliam when he was talking about how the studio would just like try to bury it and you know made things up about it. He said it seemed actually appropriate that Munchausen, the greatest liar in the world, should be a victim to some of the greatest liars in the world. Yeah, and that does seem appropriate. So I think that. Uh sums things up that does that's a perfect way to end this episode good job 
So that's the adventures of Baron Munchausen. That's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. Yes, check us out on social media. We're at awesomemovieyear.com, or are we? You'll have to go check for yourself. <laughs> yes. What is reality anyway? Uh, and then Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm at Jason Harris Comedy on all the things. Maybe J Harris Comedy. You can check either way. And then go for Jason.com. I am at joshbellhateseverything.com, Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can find it wherever you listen to this podcast and also follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. What do we have next time, Jason? Well, we're going into our documentary of 1989, and there was really only one choice. Only not, one documentary. Not was to made say in there was only one documentary, but we're going to go with the iconic documentary of. 1989, Michael Morris, Roger, and me. That is the perfect choice. So tune in next time for Roger and me. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. And all points west.